Part two, chapter thirteen of War and Peace by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Marianne. That same night, having taken his leave of the Minister of War, Volkonsky set out for the army, though he did not himself know where he should find it, and had some apprehensions, lest on the road to Krems he should be captured by the French. At Brune, all the court were engaged in packing and the heavy luggage had already been dispatched to Olmutz. Near Etzelsdorf, Prince Andrei struck the highway over which the Russian army was moving in the greatest haste and the greatest disorder. The road was so encumbered with teams that it was impossible for a carriage to make its way along. Having secured from the head of the Cossack division a horse and Cossack, Prince Andrei, hungry and tired, managed to get past the teams, and at last drove on in search of the commander-in-chief and his own train. The most ominous reports of the condition of the army had reached him on his way, and these reports were more than confirmed by the sight of the army hurrying on in disorder. This Russian army, which English gold has brought together from the ends of the universe, we shall make it suffer the same fate, the fate of Ulm. Volkonsky remembered these words from Bonaparte's general orders to his army at the beginning of the campaign, and these words inspired in him an admiration for the genius of his hero, together with a sense of wounded pride and a hope of glory. "'But suppose nothing be left me but to die,' he said to himself. "'Well, then, be it so, if it is necessary. I shall not die more shamefully than others.' Prince Andrei looked contemptuously at the endless confusion of detachments, baggage-wagons, field-pieces, and gun-carriages, and again baggage-wagons, baggage-wagons, baggage-wagons of every possible description, trying to outstrip each other and getting in each other's way as they toiled along over the muddy road, three and four abreast. In all directions, in front as well as behind, wherever the ear listened, were heard the creaking of wheels, the rumble of vehicles, carts and gun-carriages, the tramping of horses' feet, the cracking of whips, the shouts of drivers, the cursing of soldiers, denshkifts and officers. Along the borders of the highway were everywhere seen the carcasses of horses that had fallen and been left, either flayed or not flayed, as the case might be, then broken-down wagons by which solitary soldiers sat waiting for something, then, again, he saw little detachments of troops straying from the main column and hastening to scattered villages, or coming back from them, with hens, sheep, hay, or bags filled with various objects. On the slopes and rises the groups crowded together still more densely, and an uninterrupted tumult of noises arose. Soldiers plodding through mud up to their knees helped to drag by main force the field pieces and wagons. Whips cracked, Hoofs slipped, traces strained, and throats were split with shouting. The officers, who directed the retreat, galloped back and forth among the wagons. Their voices were hardly distinguishable above the general uproar, and it could be seen by their faces that they were in despair at the possibility of reducing this chaos into order. Voila, cher orthodox army, said Bolkonsky to himself, quoting Bilibin's words. Wishing to inquire of some of these men where the commander-in-chief was to be found, he galloped up to the train. Directly opposite to him was an odd equipage, a sort of cross between a cart, cabriolet, and a calash, 
driven by one horse and evidently constructed out of some soldier's domestic belongings this vehicle was driven by a soldier and under the leather cover behind the apron sat a woman all wrapped up in shawls prince andrei rode up and was just going to question the soldier when his attention was attracted by the despairing shrieks of the woman sitting in the vehicle an officer who had charge of the train had set to beating her driver because he attempted to pass ahead of the others and the blows of the whip fell on the apron the woman was screaming desperately seeing prince andrei she thrust her head out from under the hood and waving her thin arms freed from the shawls she cried adjutant mr adjutant for god's sake protect me what is going to happen i'm the doctor's wife of the seventh jaegers they won't let us pass we are left behind and have lost our friends i will knock you flatter than a pancake turn back cried the officer angrily to the soldier back with you and take your jade mr adjutant help me what can i do cried the doctor's wife please let this team pass don't you see that it is a woman said prince andrei riding up to the officer the officer glanced at him and without saying a word turned to the soldier again i'll teach you back let them pass i tell you repeated prince andrei compressing his lips who are you anyway suddenly cried the officer turning to prince andrei in a drunken fury who are you he addressed him insolently with a special emphasis on the pronoun are you commander here i'm the commander here and not you back with you i'll knock you flatter than a pancake this expression had evidently pleased the officer he gave the little adjutant a capital rating said a voice behind prince andrei saw that the officer had got into one of those paroxysms of drunken fury in which a man is not responsible for what he says he saw that his interference in the troubles of the doctor's wife was attended with what he feared more than aught else in the world being made ridiculous but instinct immediately came to his aid the officer had not time to finish what he was saying before prince andrei his face distorted by rage rode up to him and threw up his whip have the goodness to let them pass the officer made an angry gesture and hastily rode off it all comes from them from these staff officers all this disorder does he muttered do as you please prince andrei hastily rode away without looking up or heeding the thanks of the doctor's wife who called him her preserver and recalling with disgust the particulars of this humiliating scene he galloped toward the village where he had been told that the commander-in-chief was to be found when he reached the village he dismounted and started for the first house intending to rest if only for a minute and get something to eat and try to banish all the humiliating thoughts that tortured him this is a troop of footpads and not an army he was saying to himself when just as he happened to look up at the window of the first house a well-known voice called him by name he looked up and saw nesvitsky's handsome face thrust out of the little window nesvitsky vigorously chewing something in his moist mouth was waving his hand and calling him to come in Balkonsky, Balkonsky, don't you hear me come quick he cried entering the house prince andrei found nesvitsky and another adjutant having some lunch they turned eagerly to Balkonsky with the question whether he had brought anything new prince andrei read in their familiar faces an expression of alarm and uneasiness this expression was especially noticeable on nesvitsky's unusually jolly face 
Where is the commander-in-chief? asked Bolkonsky. Here, in this very house, replied the adjutant. Tell us, is it true there is peace and a capitulation? demanded Nesvitsky. I should have to ask you that. I know nothing, except that I had great trouble in finding you. And what sort of a plight do you find us in? It's horrible, my dear fellow. I plead guilty for having laughed at Mac, but here we are in a far worse position, brother, said Nesvitsky. But sit down and have something to eat. Now, prince, you won't find your luggage or anything, and only God knows where your man Pyotr is, said the other adjutant. Where's the headquarters? We are to spend the night at Nam. And I had everything that I needed packed on two horses, said Nesvitsky, and they made me some splendid pack saddles, even though we should have to worry through the mountains of Bohemia. It's a bad state of things, brother. What's the matter? Aren't you well? You shake so, asked Nesvitsky, noticing that a sudden tremor ran over Prince Andrei, as though from the discharge of a Leyden jar. Nothing is the matter, replied Prince Andrei. He happened at that instant to remember his recent encounter with the doctor's wife and the officer of the baggage train. What's the commander-in-chief doing here? he went on to ask. I haven't the least idea, replied Nesvitsky. All I know is that it's nasty, nasty, nasty business, said Prince Andrei, and he started for the house where the commander-in-chief was. Passing by Kutuzov's carriage, the jaded saddle-horses of his suite, and the vociferating Cossacks, he went into the cottage. Kutuzov himself, as Prince Andrei had been told, was in the cottage with Prince Bagration and Weirother. Weirother was the Austrian general who had succeeded to the place of the Schmidt who had been killed. In the entry, the little Kozlovsky was squatting on his heels before a clerk. The clerk, with his cuffs rolled up, was hastily writing, with a tub turned over for a desk. Kozlovsky's face looked pinched and wan. He had evidently not slept the night before. He glanced up as Prince Andrei came in, but he did not even nod to him. Second line. Have you written it? said he, proceeding with what he was dictating to the clerk. The Kief Grenadiers. The Podolian. Don't go so fast, your honor, said the clerk, in a disrespectful and surly manner, looking up at Kozlovsky. Kutuzov's animated and impatient voice was at this moment heard in the room beyond, answered by another which Prince Andrei did not recognize. By the sound of these two voices, by the preoccupied way in which Kozlovsky glanced at him, by the surly disrespect shown by the clerk, by the fact that the clerk and Kozlovsky were sitting on the floor by a tub, and so handy to the commander-in-chief, and finally, because the Cossacks holding the saddle-horses were laughing so noisily in front of the windows, by all this Prince Andrei was impressed with the idea that something grave and disagreeable must have occurred. Prince Andrei, with urgency, turned to Kozlovsky with questions. "'In a moment, Prince,' said Kozlovsky, these are the dispositions for Bagration. But the capitulation? There's no such thing. Preparations are making for a battle. Prince Andrei started for the room where he heard the talking. But just as he was going to open the door, the voices in the room became silent. The door was flung open, and Kutuzov, with his eagle nose and puffy face, appeared on the threshold. Prince Andrei stood directly in front of him, but from the expression of the commander-in-chief's one available eye, it could be seen that he was so absolutely absorbed by his work and idea that he did not see anything at all. He looked straight into his aide's face, and yet did not recognize him. 
How now? Finished? he inquired of Kozlovsky. In one second, Excellency. Bagration, a short, slender man, still in the prime of life, and with a firm and impassive face of the Oriental type, followed the commander-in-chief. I have the honor of presenting myself, said Prince Andrei, in a pretty loud tone, and at the same time extending an envelope. Ah? From Vienna? Good. Wait a little, wait a little. Kutuzov and Bagration went out on the step. Well, Prince, good-bye, said he to Bagration. Christ be with you. I give you my best wishes for the great emprise. Kutuzov's face unexpectedly softened, and the tears came into his eyes. With his left hand he drew Bagration to him, and with his right, on which flashed a ring, he made the sign of the cross over him in a manner peculiar to himself, and offered him his puffy cheek to kiss, instead of which Bagration kissed him on the neck. "'Christ be with you,' repeated Kutuzov, and got into the calash. "'Come with me,' said he to Bolkonsky. "'Your Excellency, I should like to be employed in this movement. Let me stay in Prince Bagration's division.' "'Come with me,' again said Kutuzov, and noticing that Bolkonsky hesitated, he added, "'I myself need good officers. I need them myself.' They took their seats in the calash and drove in silence for some minutes. "'There is still much, very much, before us,' said he, with an old man's keenness of perception, as though he clearly read all that was passing in Bolkonsky's mind. "'If a tenth part of this division returns tomorrow, I shall thank God,' added Kutuzov, as though talking to himself. Prince Andrei looked at Kutuzov, and his eyes were involuntarily attracted by the deep scar on Kutuzov's temple, where the Turkish bullet had crashed through his head at Ismailio, and his extravasated eye. Yes, he has a right to speak thus calmly of the destruction of these men, thought Prince Bolkonsky. That was the very reason why I ask you to let me go with that division, said he aloud. Kutuzov made no reply. It seemed as though he had already forgotten what he had just said, and he sat absorbed in thought. Five minutes later, Kutuzov, comfortably rocking on the easy springs of the calash, turned to Prince Andrei. His face showed not a sign of emotion. With gentle irony he began to ask Prince Andrei after the details of his interview with the Emperor, and the court gossip concerning the Krems engagement, and concerning certain women of whom both of them were acquainted. End of chapter 13